0: When it comes to the subject of God's judgment, everybody's favorite topic, some people, the opinions about that run all over the place. So some people absolutely refuse to think of a God who brings judgment on anybody for anything, and they uh, reject the concept altogether. If they believe in a God at all, sometimes they say things like, well, my God is a loving God. He would never judge anyone. And on the other end of the spectrum, we've got people who are saying, what's taking God so long to bring judgment? I wish he would hurry up and bring more of it because there's a lot of it needed. Today we will see that God does, does bring judgment on those who oppose him and oppress his people. It's precisely because God is good and loving that he must bring judgment against those who oppose him and oppress his people whom he loves. Otherwise his love is meaningless if he doesn't uphold what is just and true for them. In our study of Exodus, God has sent Moses and Aaron to Pharaoh to tell Pharaoh to let his people go so they may serve him. He knows Pharaoh doesn't want to give up the slave labor, so he's um, going to be very increasingly persuasive to Pharaoh about reasons he should let his people go. And in so doing, God does. uh, He promised Israel that he would redeem them from Egypt with great acts of judgment, he said. These judgments are ten plagues, We'll only cover six today. Ten plagues that um, he sends on Egypt. We're looking at six of the ten, and the plagues were not God's flying off the handle. It's not him like I can't take this anymore and I'm just going to start unleashing things like crazy. They were custom designed for Egypt. There, there were ten, and so that's the number of perfection. So God had like a, a perfect plan about how He's going to bring judgment on Egypt and release his people, set his people free. They also follow patterns. There are three, group, there are three groups of three, with the tenth one being unique and climactic. And uh, they have similar patterns between the first plague and the second plague and the third plague in each of the three groups. So that all that means is God has got a, a definite plan. He's under He's got it under control. He's not just like randomly unleashing things. He knows exactly what it will take to get Pharaoh to comply, according to his timing. Also, there have been parallels in Exodus with Genesis, with the creation account. So God created the world and sovereignly controls it. His original design was that nature would be a blessing. Creation would be a blessing to man, and man would be a blessing to creation. But in man's rebellion, God sometimes can use nature for judgment. Several of the plagues could be seen as decreation, so God bringing greater chaos and decreation, making creation destructive rather than a blessing. The plagues also get increasingly se- severe as time goes on. So, um, and He makes more and more of a distinction between Egypt and Israel. So let's have somebody besides me read this big long section that we have. And I got some volunteer readers, so please do. This is the word of God. Father, we ask that you would grant us your spirit. Help us with this big chunk of scripture to see what you want us to see in it so that we may grow in Christ's faith and hope. We ask these things in his name. Amen. Well, the Lord and the Lord's name, his personal name, we think it's pronounced Yahweh, so you'll hear me say Yahweh, you'll hear me say the Lord, uh, says to Moses that Pharaoh's heart is hardened, which he kept telling Moses in advance that this is going to happen. So he refuses to let the people of Israel go. So he said, go to him in the morning, maybe we'll catch him on a good day, as he goes to the Nile. Say these words. Yahweh or the Lord sent me to you saying let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness But so far you have not obeyed. Well, of course he hasn't obeyed because he he, he said back in chapter 5 He said I don't I don't know the Lord who is the Lord I don't he's he's just some God that I've never heard of before so I don't have any need to obey him I don't have any there's no compulsion for me to obey him. I, I'm i not going to obey the Lord so um, so Yahweh, the Lord, is getting Pharaoh started on an advanced theology course of knowing him. So you want to know me? Uh, this is a great opportunity for you to, to be in a learning mode. And so what he says in verse 17, thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. So this continues to be God's major purpose, overarching purpose in all that he's doing in Egypt, is so, so that not only Pharaoh, but Pharaoh and Egypt and the Israelites, and then eventually all the nations would know him. So he keeps emphasizing, you will know that I am the Lord. And with a staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn to blood. And bad things will happen. Fish will die. The, every, the place will stink. It will be really nasty. Why does this first plague involve changing waters of the Nile into blood? Well, for one thing, it points back to uh, God's um, getting payback to to um, Pharaoh, for the prior Pharaoh, had the people of Egypt cast the baby boys of Israel into the water. So it's a judgment back on Pharaoh. It also points forward to Egypt's going to be destroyed as they try to pass through the Red Sea. So it's, it's God's using watery judgment to um, uh, emphasize what he's doing in bringing judgment to, to Egypt. Also, the Nile was personified and worshipped as a god in Egypt, so an attack on the Nile is, in effect, an attack on Egypt's gods. And um, it was seen as the lifeblood of, of Egypt. So you attack now, you're attacking the very life of Egypt, the very heart of Egypt is the Nile. And God often works according to patterns and themes. So just as God brought a watery judgment on the corruption of the original creation in the flood of Noah and just to, to provide a new humanity, uh, a new second chance for humanity, so he's also doing that for Israel. Israel is a second chance, a new humanity and God's uh, bringing judgment on them for that, a watery judgment. So Moses and Aaron do what the Lord commands, and um, it says that in in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, he hit the water with his staff, and the water turns to blood. The fish die, the Nile stinks, and the, the Department of Fish and Wildlife finds Moses and Aaron really big, big finds. Egypt is a bloody mess. The Egyptians can't drink from the Nile. We see in verse 22 that the magicians also do the same by their secret arts. Evidently in some places there was still water, so um, not everything, not all the water changed. Maybe some canals still had some fresh water in it. but <clears throat> And it would have been more helpful for them to change it back into water, but, but they all they can do is reproduce it. They can't change it back, so... That would have been very impressive. But that's all the hard heart of Pharaoh needed to say, man, no big deal. My magicians can do the same thing, so I'm going home. So he just goes home. There is a greater deliverer than Moses, who is coming to redeem God's people, not just from Egypt, but also from a world of, of, that opposes God. That greater Moses is Jesus Christ, who already shed his blood for the sins of his people. Before he returns to bring them into his promised kingdom, he will send judgments that sound very much like what happened in Egypt. So we see this in, in Revelation. So fast forward to the end of the Bible, Revelation 16, 3-4 talks about angels pouring out bowls of judgment. So he poured a second bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. Third angel poured his bowl into the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. So, and many people might think that God is not just to do that, but what you see in Revelation 16 later is that there's a declaration that you are just to do this, God. You brought these judgments. True and just are your ways. So God is just to bring judgment. That leads us to the second plague, frogs. The Lord, in, in chapter 8, verses 1 to 15, the Lord tells Moses to go to Pharaoh and tell him to bring, to, to let his people go that they may serve him. If not, he shall plague Egypt with frogs. Interestingly, the Egyptian fertility goddess had a frog's head so you th- think they could have done better than that like fertility gods with a frogs head I think that they could have done something better than that but that's what they had at first mention this sounds kind of funny like Oh frogs I'm so scared we're gonna be attacked by frogs but imagine frogs all over all over the land all over your bed in your closets in your cereal, in every place that you go, frogs, all over you, um, in your ovens, in your drink, every place and everywhere. Now the magicians show up again and they, they make more frogs. Yay, <laughs> way to go. They can't undo frogs, but they somehow they can make some more frogs. So that causes Pharaoh to say, help First time Pharaoh starts realizing he needs to cry out the help for, to help to Moses and Aaron. Um, so they, he, he, he says, get me out of this. So when do you want it done? He says, tomorrow. Moses said, this, you see this in verse 10, be it as you say so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. No one like Yahweh our God. So once again, he's, once you, you want to know Yahweh? I'm doing this for you, so you'll know him. Pharaoh says tomorrow, he probably thinks it's more of a challenge. Well, if I give him a later date, the frogs might just go away on their own, but if I give him a later date, maybe that'll be more of a challenge. Stopping the plague is as much a sign of God's power as causing it. So um, he does it. Moses does it. He pleads God. God answers his prayer, and frogs die everywhere. Egypt has a day, at least a day, maybe more, of piling up dead frogs. And it really stinks. So, but by now you know what Pharaoh's reaction is going to be. When Pharaoh sees the frog plague is over, he hardens his heart and doesn't listen, as the Lord had said, which is dangerous. It's dangerous to keep hardening your heart. It's dangerous especially when your heart hardening is impacting other people and, and you keep hardening your heart. Spiritual hardening of the arteries can kill you and those around you. Many people in the last days looking at Revelation, the same the similar judgments were being poured out upon them and it said they did not repent. So the same thing is happening in the last days as Egypt Egypt becomes like a type of of God's last judgment upon the, the earth. People are not repenting, they're cursing God. And that's what happens when you harden your heart. You, there's no more ability to repent. Which brings us to the third judgment, gnats. Gnats. Chapter 8, verse 16 through 19. In this third plague, and in the plague 6 and 9, Pharaoh doesn't give any warning, so every third plague... It just happens. Pharaoh gets no warning. God just tells Moses what to do and then causes the plague. Here God tells Moses to say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. He does it, and gnats are everywhere. It could have been mosquitoes, so I don't know what's worse, but but the, the word could have been mosquitoes. The magicians tried to make gnats by their secret arts, and they can't make gnats. You would think gnats would be a cinch if they are making frogs. They must have missed that class. In fact, they confessed to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God, the power of God. Our secret arts couldn't do it, so it has to be a God that turned dust into gnats. Which brings us to the fourth plague, flies. These are probably stinging flies, biting flies, at the least. As with the first plague, the Lord tells Moses, Go go in the morning. Pharaoh goes out to the river. Say to him, Thus says the Lord, thus says Yahweh, Let my people go, that they may serve me. Or else if you don't, Behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants, and your people, and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies, and also the ground on which they stand. The closest thing that I can relate this to is when we lived in Texas, back when my kids were just babies. um, One morning I got up, flipped on the lights, and there were cockroaches all over the walls. Now, my wife said I could use this illustration if I promised to tell you that she kept a clean house, so it wasn't a dirty house. But it was just because in, in Texas there's lots of cockroaches, and they like to come inside and, and bug you. So I was here. I'm in my underwear, whacking cockroaches all over the walls, smacking, killing, and I I, I brutalized hundreds and hundreds of cockroaches, met their met their their end. Why we were plagued, they don't know. On that day, he says in verse 22, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I'm the Lord. So once again, he's saying, are you getting it yet, Pharaoh? Are you getting it? In the midst of the earth. Thus, I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow, the sign shall happen. The Lord says when he causes the swarms of flies to come, he will set apart the land of Goshen where Israel was staying. They, they will not have any flies. Once again, the Lord states his purpose is, you may know, you may know me. And uh, he's, he's making a division or making a distinction between Yahweh's people and Pharaoh's people. And for further evidence, this is Yahweh's doing. He tells them the timing. It will happen tomorrow. This time, they don't use a staff. So, so the staff is not like a magic wand. God doesn't need them to use a staff. He he likes them to use a staff. I don't know why so much, but, but he didn't use a staff here. So it's not like, well, the only time I can do a miracle is when I have a staff. And there came heavy swarms of flies, great swarms of flies into Pharaoh's House and his servants' houses, <clears throat> the flies ruined the whole land of Egypt. So the plague's severities are, are are intensifying. So Pharaoh calls Moses and Aaron and says, "Go sacrifice to your God within the land." Moses says, "Our sacrifices are abominable to the Egyptians. They'll stone us if we if we offer our sacrifices. They hate what we sacrifice." Pharaoh is just trying to get relief without relinquishing control and submitting to to God. Sometimes we do that. We try to bargain with God. Hey, God, I'll do this much, but I'm going to hold back this much. And that's what Pharaoh is doing. Pharaoh says, okay, you can go to the wilderness, but don't go far. Stick close. And also, don't cheat. I'll plead with the Lord to you, uh, for you, that, that he'll take away the flies, but don't cheat. So Moses goes out and prays to the Lord. He never prays in front of Pharaoh. He always goes away. And the Lord removes the flies from Pharaoh, his servants, and his people. Not one fly remained, which is also a miracle. All the flies are completely gone. But what does Pharaoh do? What does he do? Hardens his heart. Did not let the people go. One of the main developments in this section is that the Lord is making a distinction between his people and Pharaoh's people. God has been in the process of doing that really ever since man fell. Uh, He did it with with Noah, for example, and he did it with Abraham. Made a covenant with Abraham, and, and that became the people of Israel. God never says that the basis of his choice of a people that he separates to him is is their inherent goodness. He never says, because I found you to be the highest quality people, I'm choosing you. It's grounded in his sovereign choice to make a, a people his own. As Moses will say to Israel 40 years from now, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, God says, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Not because you were so numerous or you were so great, but just because the Lord decided to set his love on you and choose you. Just because of who God is, because he freely decided out of all the undeserving people on the earth, none of which qualify to be my people, I'm going to set my love upon you. I'm going to make you my people. God, God freely just sets his love upon the people to make to make them his people. And Israel demonstrates they aren't any better than others because after they get freed, they um they start acting worse than the nations around them over the over the succeeding generations and centuries. God continues to make a distinction for his own today as well. No longer based on just the covenant with Abraham, with God's physical seed of the children of Abraham, but through the fulfillment of his covenant with Abraham and Jesus Christ. So the people from all ethnic groups can become God's people, including Egyptians. So God has a long-term purpose in choosing the people of Israel to be his people that he will accomplish through his unfolding plan of redemption in Jesus Christ. In fact, what God says in Ephesians chapter 1 is that before the foundation of the world, God chose us in Christ, that we should be holy and blameless in him. And if you've noticed, you're not holy and blameless yet. So God chooses us and makes us as holy people. He, he, he sets us apart to be as holy people, and he works in us to increase that in us, but it won't be completed until Christ comes back. But he's chosen us, and he's guaranteed. How do I get that? How does that come to me? Do, do I just, where do I sign up for that? When you hear the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believe in Christ, you're sealed with the, the promised Holy Spirit. It's like the engagement ring. So when you receive Christ of the gospel, God gives you the, engage- the engagement ring of the Holy Spirit sets you apart as his holy people. Fifth plague. Egyptian livestock. The Lord tells Moses to go to Pharaoh and say, Thus says Yahweh, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, the hand, not just the finger, but the hand of the Lord will be against you, will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock. The horses, the donkeys, the camels, the the herds, and, and the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that Happens belongs to the people of of Israel will, will, shall die. So God makes a distinction again between Israel needed through their livestock. God is in control. God give, give, gives the timing of what he's going to do it. He says tomorrow, the next day he does it, and so Pharaoh sends and he sends a team to check out. Hey, is it true that none of the Israel Light livestock died? Yep. So he gets that confirmed. But once again, his heart is hardened, and he does not let the people go. Then the sixth plague boils. Pharaoh gets no verbal warning like the third plague. The Lord tells Moses and Aaron to take handfuls of soot from the kiln. Was it the kiln where they baked the bricks? That'd be interesting. And they throw the dust into the air, and it becomes settles all over Egypt, and they all break out into painful boils on both people and animals. This is the first miracle that indicates their lives are in danger. So they're intensifying. They're getting worse. And magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for they were covered with boils themselves. And this is the last time we see them, the magicians. They're done. Hey, we're, we are finished. We're not joining in on this anymore. So bye-bye, magicians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. So Pharaoh's, there's no going back now. You've done enough heart hardening. God's moving in and confirming you in your hardness. Sometimes we see people who keep resisting God's efforts to make himself known to, him, known to them and to call them to repent of their sinful choices, but as soon as the bad consequences cease... They harden their hearts and keep turning their backs on God. We sometimes say things like this. Well, they have to hit bottom before they look up. They have, they have to get as bad as they can be till they, to, before they'll change. Sometimes that happens, but it's not a good plan to keep hardening your heart in hopes that, hey, i got to hit bottom before I'll change. Because sometimes you just hit bottom and you get harder. We see in Revelation 16, too, a, once again, a parallel plague in the last days. It says, the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. So, and it says again in, in other place in Revelation that they cursed God, for, uh, the God of heaven, for their pain and sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. It's obvious that Jesus' revelation to John, so in writing the book of Revelation, Jesus Christ is revealing this to the Apostle John, involves imagery from the plagues that led to Israel's exodus from Egypt. So why is that significant? The same God who brought judgment on those who opposed him and oppressed his people in Egypt is the same God who will bring final judgment on on the earth against those who oppose him. He is the same God who delivered his people from Egypt, Israel. He is the same God who will redeem a people from this world, from all nations, to be his own. So is the God of the Exodus the same God that we read about in John 3.16? I mean, wow, he's he's got a lot of judgment. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And John 3.17 says, God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world should be, might be saved through him. So the world needs to be saved from what? What does the world need to be saved from? They need to be saved from judgment. So God won't judge people, is that what he's saying? Well, in John three eighteen, it says whoever believes in him is not condemned, that's good. But whoever does not believe in is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the of the Son of God. We need to be saved from judgment. If you reject Jesus, you you're condemned. You're condemned. Jesus is the only safe place to be protected from God's judgment. And he's totally judgment proof. In The Lion Witch in the Wardrobe, Mr. Beaver is telling Susan about Aslan the Lion, who, if you don't know the story, Aslan is, is like Jesus in the story. And so Beaver says to Susan Aslan is a lion, the lion. The great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I I shall feel, feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. How good is Jesus? He took the judgment due to me and to you that I deserve in his death on the cross. So he is really, really, really good. Because he willingly bore God's just judgment against us. If you are in Christ by faith, there is therefore no condemnation, no judgment against you ever. You are eternally safe in Him. Christ is not safe for those who oppose Him and for His people. Jesus talked a lot about final judgment, and it's not loving to not warn about final judgment. It's just it's compassionate to let people know it's coming, and compassionate to pointed that to the. the, the The place that you can be safe from it is in Jesus. Jesus says in another place, truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment. If you have eternal life in Jesus, you do not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So along with this, Knowing that our God will justly judge evil is an encouragement and gives hope in a world where it seems like evil can't be stopped. It just seems like evil just keeps escalating and does whatever it wants, almost. The, the ten plagues pictures for us that God has a definite plan. God is in control. Yes, he's permitting it to be there for a season, but he's, he's got a plan to, to extinguish it and to save the people out of it according to his timing when evil will be judged and we will be with Christ as his redeemed people so one of the ways that we we declare our dependence upon Christ in in keeping us in relationship to him is through taking the communion elements so the bread is the symbol of his body that he took on to become a man so he could Die because as Son of God he couldn't die, but as a man he could die for us. Also, so he could enter into our human experience and unite us to himself. So he gives us his bread as a symbol of that, and in eating it we're we're saying, "Hey, I depend upon Christ every day. I need him every single day. I, I I need him like I need food every single day." And the cup is representative of his blood. It represents his death for us, his cleansing, purifying blood his holy blood, that only he, the only person that ever endured all temptation and never sinned, ever, never never acted on an evil thought, never had an evil thought. He understood evil, but he, but he always perf- perfectly resisted it, and he overcame evil. So through the blood of his cross, he liberated us from Egypt, from this world, from our sin. So we're, we're going to invite you to, as we enter into a further time of musical worship, to... Um, Take the bread, take the cup, take the cracker, dip it in the cup, and celebrate and, and continue to confess your need for Jesus every day. And I'll, Lord Jesus, we need this truth that you judge sin and you save sinners. Just like you made a distinction between Israel and Egypt, you're making a distinction in the world between those, not those who are the good people and those who are the bad people, but those who you have rescued and made your own people, and those who have not received that rescue. So, Father, as your rescued people, who have trusted in Jesus, in his death and resurrection, in his ongoing ministry for us as as our great high priest in his powerful saving work that he continues to do in us through his Holy Spirit and through these elements that he entrusted, he gave to the church to continue to take as as a symbol of his body and blood and of our ongoing dependence upon him to continue to keep us in relationship to him. Thank you, Father, for giving us Christ. Thank you that he... How can we even imagine he took our judgment on the cross and gave us life in his name. So thank you for that amazing gift. We ask that you would cause us to continue to grow in grace and knowledge of him and dependence upon him and make this message known of rescue from judgment through the gospel. We ask these things in his name. Amen.